Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Jim Bumgardner. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So for people who haven't met you yet, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. I'm a software engineer professionally, have been for about 30 years. And I currently work for the state of California at the California Office of Digital Innovation, ODI, working on the COVID-19 website as a senior full-stack developer. The past 10 years, I was at Disney, director of application development initially at Disney Interactive, and then a principal senior software engineer at... Uh, and that's where and that's where we met. Right. That's where we met. <laughs> <laughs> principal senior at Disney Imagineering. And when the quarantine started, many of us were furloughed and about 300 of us at Imagineering or so were uh, laid off, including many of the elderly. <laughs> and I was among them. Now working for the state on a small skunkworks-like team, and it's been great. Love it there. Yeah, you sounds like you've been really enjoying it. Yeah, part of the reason why I wanted to have Jim on the show is that, Jim, you are one of the most prolific software engineers that I have met. For people listening, Jim and I also run a... I don't know, meetup. Sometimes it's referred to as like the, the fight club of meetups because if it's your first time, you have to give a, give a demo of something that you've built. And so a lot of the the main people involved in this often have lots of side projects pretty much all the time, have some sort of independent research project going, some kind of tinkering, some kind of building. And Jim is no exception, probably one of the people who who takes that much more to the extreme. A lot of very cool projects I've seen from Jim. And as, a, as an illustration of this, while I was actually working for Jim at Disney, once upon a time, I posted on Reddit a little web animation simulation that I built. At the time, there was a video of a wave pendulum going around the internet. If you haven't seen this, it looks like the Newton's Cradle desk toy where the steel balls that come off of strings and you pull one back and it knocks into the other ones. But wave pendulums, the balls don't hit each other. They all move parallel and they have slightly different length strings, which changes the rate at which they swing back and forth. And so it's all done in a way that when you let them go, they move in this very serpentine-like way. Then they get out of phase, come back in phase, and they generate very cool patterns. So there's this video of people who had built a real one, probably in a physics class or something like that. And it, it, people really liked it. So I wanted to build one for myself, render it using, I don't know, I'm, I don't know if I used processing at the time, but, and wanted to build one for myself, put it on the internet, on Reddit. And one of the funniest comments that I saw was somebody saw mine, had a comment saying, oh, wow, this really reminds me of this website, We Love Whitney Music Box. <laughs> and I replied back, oh, my boss made that. <laughs> and then the I think I remember the reply after that was like, bricks were shat. 
because I think actually in the title, I think I named it some clickbaity thing while my boss wasn't looking. I made this HTML5 wave pendulum, but it, it was definitely one of those things where it was like Jim had a big influence on me and, and other people could tell. So very happy to have you on the show. And yeah, Jim, I, I do want to talk a little bit about your side projects because you have so many of them. Oh, happy to. Um, certainly what you were just talking about was recreational programming, and I do a huge amount of that, always have. In fact, I was doing some this morning. Before we got together for this, I've been making, I have a, a AxiDraw pen plotter, and I've been making Nakistoscopes, which are 19th century animation toys on it, and I've been working on one for the last couple of days with a rotating icosahedron that morphs into a dodecahedron and, and grows points along the way. So yeah, lots of those. And I, I, here's the thing. When I started, before I started, because I'm a late boomer, I was born in the early 60s. My only exposure to computers was in popular media, which usually portrayed them as evil or <laughs> incompetent, right? Like the things I remember were an episode of Star, of, of Star Trek, classic Star Trek, where I think it was Landru was like this computer that you know turned out to be, oh, it's a computer. No wonder that everything's <laughs> fucked up. Or, or I think there was an episode of the Brady Bunch where someone accidentally got a check with too many zeros on it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So computers were these sort of monolithic, incompetent and or evil things. And so I was very not interested in, in them at all as a kid. We didn't have access to them the way kids do now. And, uh, and so it was just very much into music and English and liberal arts. And I thought that was how my life was going to go. So I ended up at, at Cal Arts and started getting into modular synthesizers, doing a lot of analog electronic music involving the Buchla synthesizer studio they had there and scotch tape and razor blades to edit the reel to reel tape. And, and that was actually quite technical. And so I was learning a lot of math at that point, because I needed to understand about sine waves and sawtooth waves and harmonics and things like that. And I started getting interested in using computers to compose music. And so right at that time, computers were just starting to become accessible to people. So I bought $100 computer at the local Kmart. That was a Raspberry Pi? No, it I'm was just a Timex Sinclair 1000. This would have been around 82-ish, maybe late 81, around there. And that was my first computer, and I just got totally obsessed with it. And so I was just up all hours of the night programming it. And What, what, hooked, what hooked you on it? Do you remember what it was about it? Yeah, it was like pure creativity. You could imagine things and then get immediate feedback that that thing you imagined was made real. So that it was like a godlike power. So it was a very, yeah, very fast feedback loop. Very fast feedback loop with doses of pleasure and ego gratification. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I imagine this thing and it actually works. And there's, and there's, I guess any kind of making activity has that. But growing up, I had done very little hands-on making. I was raised by a single mom 
in high school I went to, I, I didn't take shop because that was taught the same hour that the music classes were taught. So I was doing music. So I never, I did very little hands-on. Was it, does music provide the same? I'm not a musician, but does music provide the same yes. kind of? Okay. And that's why I was. Feedback loop. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And and my major at CalArts was composition, which is also, it, it, it's not just you perform it, it's you make it, right? So I was very much about the making and it, it, it's a very ego driven <laughs> activity, not going to lie. <laughs> so composition is about as ego driven as it gets. So this was like that, but it was in smaller doses and immediately rewarding all the time. And so I, I just got utterly addicted and my studies actually started to suffer as a result because I was just up all night writing software. And ultimately, I ended up getting rejected for the master's program at CalArts because of it, because my grades weren't that great. So, yeah. <laughs> so that is a bummer, but I do have to ask. So when you just started with this programming, I have to assume that it wasn't all easy street. Like, you, it must have been challenging to teach yourself this thing that you hadn't done before like or were you just or did you just start off programming perfectly and anything no. that you wanted to do <laughs> like you just instantly created no but you but i learned by making mistakes here's the thing though it's so long ago that i'm probably putting a false narrative on it without realizing <laughs> it but this is what i remember i remember that the time sinclair had a very readable manual and i basically went through the whole manual cover to cover i Strongly remember the page or two that described the random number function. That was huge. And in my, I've always loved the random number generator, still do. And that, because that was like the creative impulse in any program you would write. Now, bear in mind that I'm not writing accounting software, right? I'm writing programs. <laughs> I'm writing programs that, that compose music, so you want, or that make up original music, so you want something random in there to make a melody line go up and down. Yeah, if you're writing accounting software, maybe lay off the random number function. Yeah, but the random number uh, generator is like a fire hose. And what I got very good at doing was steering the fire hose and running it through different screens or filters to make it accomplish the things I wanted to accomplish. Actually, Play-Doh extruders are maybe a better metaphor <laughs> for the controlling the random number function. So I love that. And I just did it all the time. And very quickly, in addition to writing software that composed music, I was doing like little screensavery like thing, what would now be called screensavers, stuff that filled the screen with blocky graphics and scroll, scrolled up from the bottom and the little kaleidoscope programs and spirals. I remember taking a class where we were using an analog video synthesizer, which was very cool that where you had to like knobs for the RGB and sine waves and things like that. And I used the Timex Sinclair as an input into that. And that was quite cool at the time. And then one of my first programs did bad tarot card readings. I remember that one. So I progressed very quickly. I do remember reading other computer manuals and struggling with them. And I found that it was always better to have two or three. If I wanted to learn something, if I bought just one manual and you didn't understand something the author was saying, you were effed. So it was really useful to have two or three. <laughs> 
Yeah, someone would cover it well, yeah, but but they wouldn't cover everything well. And similarly... Because chances are that the holes wouldn't line up perfectly. So if one was deficient, yeah, yeah, interesting. I found early on that learning multiple languages was super helpful as a way to, to learn. That second language was super hard because the first language, basic, was like mother's milk. <laughs> And that was all I knew. And actually, my second language was prologue, but I didn't do it a lot of prologue. That was, and not on that computer. And then I think it was DBase2, which was a Pascal-like database programming language that came with DBase database, which was popular at the time. And I think it later became Foxbase. Ah, yes. By the way, DBase, the DBase language did not have a random number generator, but it was otherwise... Not an efficient one. And I didn't know yet how to make them from scratch because I didn't have a copy of Donald Newth on me or anything. And I, and I didn't quite have the math down at that point. And I didn't have the freaking internet and browser stack and all that good stuff. I remember, but it was still quite powerful to be able to use DBase to, to compose music. I was composing a piece in my last year at CalArts for seven pianos. So at the time, did you were you seeing the this programming as much more of a means to to augment your music compositions and and what you were doing initially with yeah. yes mm-hmm. so it was a tool then to... i saw music as an entertaining thing i mm-hmm. could do in addition Got it. to programming yeah it flipped it very yeah. quickly flip flop so what so when that flipped though then what was programming to you it was it, i imagine it was still a means to accomplish other things i don't or was programming like in and of itself like the goal. I discovered that fairly early on that every time I wrote a program to do X, I would get super interested in X, which might be something I wasn't interested in otherwise, or didn't know I was interested in. And so programming became a kind of key to making the universe more interesting and, and for learning about it. So I've gotten into a lot of different hobbies like needlepoint, certainly many areas of mathematics, mechanical instruments, and I've used programming as a way to access them. Yeah, I almost imagine it. In my head, I'm thinking that like pond water is not particularly interesting until you have a microscope or something like that. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I, yeah, I had the thought one day, and I wasn't high, <laughs> <laughs> that the sidewalk itself the concrete on the sidewalk itself is super fascinating if you just look at it with a, a big enough microscope. And yeah, that's basically it. There, there's yeah. like the computer became a way to pick apart and examine the, I guess, the intricacies or the, the yeah, that's cool. I love that. Okay. If we zoom forward to, to what I consider to be a really good extension of a lot of these side skill, like, explorations and things like that i think there's in terms of career i see two two parts that were going on simultaneously like one is more of your like indie hacker independent entrepreneurial type thing with puzzles where you made money with your own website generating sudoku puzzles and other even more interesting or obscure ones and then also at the same time you were you were working at Disney for people listening there's within Disney they almost have this mythological status the imagineers <laughs> are the the people who come up with the rides at 
Disneyland. Like your job is effectively to make kids dreams come true or like invent just things that haven't been done before, period, and in a very physical, real way. And so Jim was working for Imagineering in R&D. So the most creative of the creative within Disney, which is very cool. Like, I know a lot of people from there. They're all fascinating, brilliant people. So I know a big part of the culture there revolved around the demo days, like the cycle of, I don't, I forget if it was once a year or twice a year, there would just be this huge, once a year, there'd be like this huge rush to show off different projects. Like, what was that like, like from your perspective, just as a software engineer that was it r&d for about four and a half years five years something like that and i was essentially on loan (laughs) to them from disney interactive which was creative accounting they don't hire a lot of people at r&d but uh, they have the budget to bring in consultants and i was in this sort of halfway state there but yeah i so yeah they have an annual open house in october and their year revolves around that open house to the point where there's, so in, in the couple months leading up to open house, people are working like crazy. They're putting in weekends, they're bringing in dinner. There's a ton of crunch time. People get totally exhausted. There's usually severe bugs, even in the first day or two of open house that still need to be fixed. And then they have a couple of weeks of open houses and it smooths out and then people take their vacations. And then for the next few months, it's pretty quiet. And I, my understanding was that the success of that open house determined their, to, to, to some extent, their, their budget and also their operating orders for the next year. So it was a huge deal and still is. So there's a lot of crunch time. I think other industries like video games have this too. A lot of the creative, yeah. So how, yeah, so how were those projects organized? Because I feel like there's some inter- things, interesting things to be taken away from it because effectively what you are doing, like you aren't, you aren't really doing typical software. It's not like CRUD. It's not, okay, we need a form where someone can enter in like a name and an age and some other stuff. And we create an endpoint to save it. And then we got to modify it. You're not really looking at, oh, let's just create a Yelp clone or anything like that. You're like, how do you, and where I'm like, the line for me is that you often, I would assume have some overlap from you creating things that had never been done before for your own intellectual curiosity. Like, how did you approach these projects? How did you decide what to work on? How big to stretch? Because there is risk, right? You've got limited amount of time. And so if you try and pull off something that's never been done before and you fail, like you got nothing to show. Yeah. I didn't have a whole lot of agency at R&D. I was essentially a gun for hire. So I was usually invited to work on specific um, projects where that had a software need. And often there would be more than one of us. In different years, there were different things. One of the more interesting ones was just a couple of years before I left, where I was doing a lot of Arduino programming, Raspberry Pi programming, and PC programming to control various sensors and actuators in a demo attraction that we were working on. So related to robotics, like you were using like a bunch of different systems and tools to drive some real world action. 
And it was a very good project for my sensibilities because it, it was, there was a lot of different stuff to do. All, each thing was quite different. It all needed to work together. And then also they didn't have the budget for a composer. And so I also got to compose music for it. So that was awesome. Oh. <laughs> that was, that used my entire brain, which was, which is, does not happen. It's like you were writing, often. composing music and yeah. like giving a robot life. Yeah. Got and it. writing software. Got it. Yeah. 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 Life was good. And there were a lot of people working on that project in different capacities. Some were just doing physical crafting of stuff. There were people doing carpentry. Yeah. Yeah people writing control software, et cetera, et cetera. That was a cool project. Very multidisciplinary, sounds like. How much of that Raspberry Pi Arduino actuator software had you written? I hadn't done as much having a Pi and an Arduino work together in concert, which was actually a, a very powerful combo. I had done a lot of mostly LED strip programming on Arduinos. I'd done a lot of that. Got and it. And I'd written... For a different project that I can talk about <laughs> more explicitly at the park, I wrote a MIDI player for Raspberry Pi that was used to control one of the old 1920s mechanical instruments at the park. That, that was cool. for this project called Ghost Post, which was like a mail order alternate reality game. And as part of the game, you would go into the park and you could affect this is sort of a precursor to Disney Play, which I worked on later, but you could affect various attractions in the park by standing next to them with your phone turned on. And so you could conduct music. There were, the, the conceit was that there were ghosts that were strewn throughout the park and you, were, you had to release them so they could get back to the Haunted Mansion. And you could conduct this essentially a player piano instrument. It's actually in a, it was a type of orchestrion, as it's called. And by conducting the music on it, you would trigger a light show, which I also programmed on the Arduino, and then cause ghosts to issue forth and go back to the Haunted Mansion. Also using a lot of different parts of my brain and did, and also wrote ragtime music arrangements <laughs> of uh, Grim Grinning Ghosts for that machine, which was fun. So the more, you know, the more a job employs the sort of creative programming aspects of my personality the better generally but if it doesn't then i just do more on the side <laughs> <'Cause I'm> gonna, <laughs> it's just like I'm a balance be, so you got to fill that quota yeah. somehow i got to fill that quota somehow and that's what the puzzle website is before we get to that though i want to dig in a little bit more so when you start on a project like that is much more creative more keep how I keep thinking that you're doing something that hasn't been done before. Like, how do you approach that? Do you have particular ways that you think about doing that so that it doesn't wind up failing? Often, is there a situation where you get stuck because there's nothing that you can look at? It's like a tutorial for like how to build this ghost music instrument thing. It's like, how do you approach this? Because I think a lot of people listening this is a common scenario for them that they might feel stuck or they want to do something that hasn't been done before. So what advice do you, do you have for that? There's two sides to it. The first one is often when I choose side programming projects, I will choose something that I don't understand well because I want to learn more about it. Good example is computer chess. I got really into computer chess and that was like in the early 2000s. In the early 90s, I first got into computer chess. And the reason I got into it was because there's 
some kinds of programs like a spreadsheet, I could look at and go, okay, I have a pretty good idea how they made that and how I would make that. The reason I have a pretty good idea is because I didn't know how they made that back in the eighties and I tried it, <laughs> but I had never made a computer chess program and I didn't really understand how you could get a computer to actually make good decisions. And there was a whole AI aspect to it that I didn't understand. And that's why I got into it was so I could learn about it. And then I bought a bunch of books on the topic and read about it and then tried it. And, and then I got better at it. Similarly, the reason I got into puzzles. Did you, so the way to do that though, you just hire a midget and. Oh. In a, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> midget chess champion. We're referring to the mechanical Turk <laughs> for people. Who We're don't talking know. About, the, the correct term is diminutive chess. Player, uh, yes. Anyway. Yes. And then similarly, I got into puzzles because I didn't understand how one made a Sudoku puzzle and I wanted to understand it. Even after, you know, programming for 20 years or whatever, I didn't understand how you would go about doing that. And so I tried it and read some papers on the su subject, etc. So the other aspect to that question is now doing that as a hobby, I have this huge library of projects I've worked on. And it not only gives me actual code that I can look at, it also gives me ideas. And so I can, so when I'm confronted with a new problem, there's always two or three things I've done before that are similar. And that'll give me an operating conceptual metaphor that I can use to approach this new problem. And sometimes that can be quite effective. And, and then when it's not, it's like over time, you've built this lot pattern library or like yeah. toolbox that, that you have access to. Yes. And certainly by the time I, I was doing the music programming at the, with the mechanical instrument we were talking about before, the ghost post thing, I had done so much music programming at that point, tons of MIDI programming, certainly. I had written low-level digital synthesis software by then. I And I was also at that point getting super fascinated anyway with mechanical music instruments. I now own one, player piano, and so... I understood pretty well what their limitations were, what the constraints that we were operating under were. So all that, all that prior experience definitely helped. And, and I had, you know, good people I was working with as well. I didn't, I wasn't that particular experience. I was partnering with my friend Harut and he was also doing, as far as I was concerned, the heavy lifting <laughs> and I was just having fun. Uh, making music and light shows. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it just helps to, to really enjoy what you're doing and watch. Yes. The... And that is why I'm still hands-on at this stage in my career. Many of my former colleagues are retired and buying and selling real estate. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So your puzzle websites and you do, it's like you have your side entrepreneurial version it's it's like side project also creative generative but also that's like another i don't know aspect of your career you want to talk a little bit about that sure i i had a, a super productive period in my mid to late 40s where i was just working on a ton of stuff that was around the time that i i was working on the book flicker hacks and was working on the puzzles and working on all kinds of stuff and i had uh, hundreds of different projects I wanted to work on. And I realized I needed to prioritize them. And at some point I made a conscious decision <laughs> that at least 
some of the projects I'm, I'm spending significant time on should actually have, it would be good if they had some financial <laughs> return. Return on investment. That encouraged me to get deeper into puzzles, which I was already interested in. And so about, around the time the Sudoku craze hit, I, I started working on construction software. And then I had this program that would generate Sudoku puzzles. And that program is not unlike like a Bitcoin mining program, except <laughs> instead <laughs> of causing re requiring a super, super powerful graphics card and generating tons of heat, it just runs on a laptop. And instead of generating something that's worth $10,000, it generates something that's worth about a nickel. <laughs> but if you make enough of them, it's a lot of nickels. Although you have to be careful because if you generate too many of them, then you flood the market. But that's another story. <laughs> ah, interesting. That, the economics. Which of, I've already uh, done, yeah. So I started yeah. putting the puzzles on uh, a website and just made them available for free, hence flooding the market. The website is called Crazy Dad with a K. And over the, I started doing that around 2005. I, I did the shareware thing for about two years and then I got out of it because there was just too much customer service. And I, I discovered the virtues of passive, of truly passive income, which is just put the puzzles on the website and give them away for free. And then either you get return on ads or you get return on donations, but you don't actually have to do customer service unless you want to. And so over the years, that's evolved to just donations. I don't run ads anymore. And that's better, much, much better. I find it's a better user experience. The website doesn't look like a, an ad ghetto and it's quite nice. And then last year around the beginning of quarantine, I got contacted by uh, Will Shorts, who's the crossword editor for the New York Times and the, uh, the NPR quiz master you may have heard. And he was enjoying some puzzles I make called Star Battle. At, the, at this point, the site has about 40 varieties of puzzles on it. Yeah. Very cool, like the interesting collection of puzzles that you've been able to figure out and generate. Yeah, once you've made 10 of them, it gets much easier. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, it's not hard to crank out new puzzle varieties. And uh, so he was enjoying the Star Battles and had already published some handmade ones last in 2019, which the readers were enjoying. And so they were gonna they were gonna expand the printed puzzle feature and wanted to, he wanted to run a daily star battle. So I supplied them with a year's worth of puzzles. They've been running them in the print edition Monday through Saturdays. They just uh, re-up for the second year, which is great. Yeah. And then since then I've, I have a contract with um, Andrews McNeil Universal, formerly uh, Universal fantastic. Syndicate to, to be their, their main Sudoku supplier. So that's great. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you uh, the metaphor of, mining use bitcoin mining but yeah the, the idea that you've oh you like puzzle generators are total are are basically little money machines and it's not just by themselves that it, it has to be combined with a distribution mechanism yeah but you've created this way of yeah you know, you've created a machine that can mine these and then yeah you've also figured out okay how to sell them and get to the get them to the people who who value them there is this machine yeah and, and mining is a really good metaphor. It, it, I often use, it's, pan, it's panning for gold in that you're using the random number generator to create content and then you're filtering that content to look for the good stuff, mm -hmm. yeah. which is the pan. And that's basically what a, at least the puzzle generation programs I write do. I, I call them uh, sieves or sieves. 
It's funny. That's almost how I hire talent, but that's oh. a story for, for another <laughs> <Yeah>. day. <laughs> cool. Okay. Got the Disney side, the creative side, and then you're more like independent entrepreneurial creative side. And, you know, if it's cool, like I want to talk a little bit more about just over time, maybe the lessons you've learned from other senior programmers or project management, like what do you feel also goes into just being successful as a you know senior software engineer hmm. i've i've had a few early good influences one of my first was kevin bjorki who was my roommate for a while at and best friend at cal arts kevin is worked at pixar for a while and was also is you'll find his name in a lot of computer graphics books. And he was super talented. When I met him, he already knew how to program. And I don't know how, because he was a film student at CalArts. I believe his dad was a NASA engineer. And that, and so I think he had act, he, he had some kind of access before he came <laughs> to CalArts. But he was already quite mathematically sophisticated, was doing experimental 3D animation on classic... IBM PCs operating a, like a 16 millimeter camera with, with with a switch on the parallel port and photographing the monitor to, to do essentially analog, uh, hybrid analog digital animation. So he was a huge influence and we worked together for a few years and I learned a ton from him. And one of the things I think I learned from Kevin was just to be fearless, was just to try things. And then I had a, I had a boss, uh, Walt Clappert, who was great when I was working at Time Warner back in the early 90s uh, at a company that was called originally called Warner New Media, which was a multimedia edutainment company making CD-ROMs. You remember those? <laughs> of course. And I ultimately ended up making their in-house authoring tools when I was there. And Walt was older than me by about so many years. I don't I don't know the exact number, but he was an elder statesman for sure. And, and like all he did the same kind of stories that I do now to entertain younger programmers. <laughs> like, oh, we used to program with toggle switches and directly uh, manipulating <laughs> the ones and zeros by moving bricks and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember one of the things I learned from Walt was that he perceived many things that I thought were just normal and sensible and good as fads, as stylistic fads. And I'm the same way now. <laughs> <laughs> In that I've seen some things that seem sensible and good that everyone talks about, but they come and go over time. And what I've tried to do is identify the things that are going to be, that are going to deliver long-term value. And this is also just an aging strategy because <laughs> you have fewer and fewer brain cells to work with. So identify the things that are going to deliver long-term value and invest in those and don't spend a lot of brain power on learning every detail of a product that might be dead in 10 years, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Is an example of this, like concentrating more on say like vanilla JavaScript as opposed to a framework on top of it? No, that's exactly it. Also, I think it's, there is absolutely nothing wrong with writing your own framework <laughs> so that you have something so that you understand how the framework works under the hood. Do you think, is that just a general concept that you like? Like you mentioned like, oh, I don't understand how chess AI works. So I'm going to write mine. Or I don't understand how a spreadsheet works. So I'm going to so write mine. Because well, the, the more experience you have, the more you realize that there, 
the library that you're using that provides one useful feature, you might be able to write that useful feature in 20 lines of code. And then you have that useful feature without that expensive footprint that the library that gave you that one feature is giving you. So I think it's important to, especially early on, to implement as many things as you can by hand as a pedagogical tool so that you understand the actual, what's act, you have a pretty good guess of what is going under the hood and, and then knowing when a tool is truly delivering some value. I'm not saying don't use libraries and plugins. I'm saying learn to get better at understanding when they're truly delivering value. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of times you won't actually be able to appreciate what a library is doing for you until you try and do it on your own. And sometimes you will recognize that, wait a minute, like I totally do not need this thing to to do this for me. I can do it. And other times you'll be like, oh, wow, there are a lot of edge cases here and I this is not what I want to spend my time doing is figuring out all the little nuances of this. But now I can see the bottom of the pool now and I don't have an interest in going down there. So I'm glad that this thing does it for me. I, for me, I, I did a lot of this with, which isn't surprising considering our overlap as I did a lot of this with like charts and graphs and visual programming. Like I'd often not want to use something like processing or uh, D3 and I'd want to do it custom, but occasionally you wind up in a situation where it's like I generating your own like compensating axes and having the tick spacing and all of that. That's if you try and do one of those projects yourself, you'll recognize this is really hard to nail it in a very general good way. And that's something that you might want to rely on somebody else's. Yeah, tick tick spacing in particular is quite doing it well at all scales and is yeah, is quite hard. And I actually recently wrote a tick spacer because I wasn't happy with <laughs> I wasn't happy with because of course you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause we used D3 at work and their tick spacer wants to put 10 access lines and I was wanting one that favored five. <laughs> yeah. It just came oh, out different. Yeah. Man. But it's interesting yeah. that you I consider it like underscore low dash, but for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. It's interesting you say that because just right now we're, we're working with one of the other uh, state departments on choosing graphic libraries. And we use D3 in-house and I like D3. The thing I like about D3 is that it, it's chart agnostic. It's really more of a data manipulation library than a, that happens to yeah. make charts. I think there's a lot of frameworks like that where if you're using it as described on the package, you're going to be fine. But then if you really want to, to tweak it in a way that it doesn't want to go, you're going you're gonna to have a bad time. But if you compare it to things like high charts or charts.js, those libraries have a super simple learning curve, but they also very much have an in-house style. And the more you want to deviate from that in-house style, the more work you, you end up putting in to kind of bend it to your will. And so it all ultimately ends up being about the same. If you're doing something very different, it ends up being about the same amount of code. It's just different code. You know. All right. So what? What? Let's talk a little bit more about what you really, what what helps make your project successful. Do you use automated testing or TDD? Like when you're managing a project, what type of project management? Favorite tools? What goes into to a successful gym project on the job? Oh yeah. The closer you are to that hello world tutorial, the better. <laughs> 
it's it's 100% the people you're working with and the attitude they have. It, Mind over matter, huh? Yeah. Number one, the tools don't matter that much, I think. Ultimately, the, in, the in-house style does not matter that much. If you have a lot of colleagues who are fairly rigid in their thinking and insist that you use just this one tool set and no other tool set, that can be a problem. <laughs> so I think ultimately working with good people is important. Working with the appropriate team size, which I prefer it to be quite small, is important. Having a healthy team dynamic and good communication is probably the most important thing of all. How do you ensure that? What is that? Is, is there like a concrete way to know if you have that or a concrete way to get that? I can, that's a good question. I can, I've been on enough healthy teams and not so healthy teams that I can usually identify them pretty quickly. When you see it? Yeah, one one thing for sure is if people are afraid to express their opinion, if there's a, if there's just a lot of head nodding and assent and not a lot of, frank discussion that's usually a bad sign and people need to be comfortable mm-hmm. enough i think the, that's a hot topic of psychological safety i think that was like out of this google study. yeah it's huge and, and people need to be comfortable enough with each other to, to truly express their opinions as an elder <laughs> programmer and someone who's not as embarrassed about coming off wrong or not as i don't have as much social anxiety as I did in my twenties and, and fewer filters. I am, I will often ask stupid questions and I'm perfectly willing to be the person that asks stupid questions early on and, and to be that person. And that it's important that those questions get asked. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's, it's, you don't get very many superpowers as you get older, you mm-hmm. mostly lose them. Yeah. But one of the ones you gain is not giving a fuck. (laughs) And that is a really important ability up till about the point where you start getting dementia and then it's bad. But you should should use that for the greater good to increase the health of your team as much as you can if you have it. Is that a muscle that can be built up earlier or you just have to wait until it's it's bestowed on you by age? I don't know. It's maybe a personality <laughs> thing, but yeah, I've definitely Fair enough. experienced many times. I will ask a really obvious, stupid question and I will hear audible sighs around me because the people are like relieved that someone finally asked it. Like some, like you'll, there's someone who's doing a presentation and they keep using the same three letter acronym over and over again. And no one asks what it means. And then you ask what it means. And people are like, I was hoping someone would ask that. <laughs> <laughs> Just like relieving the, the tension. Yeah, questions questions are really important. I think as a tool or as a skill on team in communication, I know I rely on them absolute ton as a manager. Like I never right. really want to say that's wrong. I disagree with it or anything like that, I'm always much more likely to be asking like, okay, why do you think that, you know, what went went into your decision on this? And I think that's something that everybody can do. And occasionally I have no problem admitting that I don't, don't know. It's okay. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Can we just like dumb this down a little bit? Explain it to me. Like I'm five. Let's start from the beginning. 
And I think if more people are like fine with that, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I know I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of that old Phil Hartman unfrozen caveman lawyer sketch, but, but sometimes you got to do that. Can we just take a mile high view here and just go, what are actually we talking about here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's definitely, I like bringing up the questions. I think that's, that's really important. As far as tools go, I don't have any secret weapons for people. I tend to, I tend to favor the command line more than many of my colleagues. And I don't go super whole hog into fancy editor plugins. I use a handful and a lot of them I turn off. (laughs) Like some of the defaults in Visual Studio Code, which is a very nice editor. I've been turning off lately, like it really wants to import libraries when you mention something that it thinks you need to import. And I hate that. (laughs) I don't like having my butt wiped for me. Yeah. Sounds like you're very intentional with what you include or don't. And you don't like, you don't like pulling in more than you need in libraries or plugins or anything like that. And I think that's good. It reminds me of certain types of craftsmen who don't use fan- fancier does everything for you unless there's a good reason for it. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Use a file and a, a chisel and you're done. <laughs> oh, cool. Jim, this has been so great. Where can people find out more about you online? My puzzle website has an about page that has links to most of my social media accounts and papers and books and press coverage and all that stuff. And that website is crazy dad with a K. So that would be where I'd start if you're actually curious. Right on. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And as I mentioned before, Jim is quite prolific. So there's a lot of really neat stuff that you can find in there. Jim, thanks again for joining me today. Thank you. It was fun. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Remote work is here to stay. I can show you how to find and hire a full team of remote senior engineers for a quarter of what you'd pay at local rates. To learn more, check out superstruct.tech slash four phase. That's F-O-U-R dash P-H-A-S-E.